0: sarah marshall
1: hello alex seed we're doing thor finally we're finally doing thor oh my god i did not think that we would be able to get here but we
0: <laughs> did one person said said on Twitter that we've been talking about this so long that they started to think that there was some Mandela effect thing where mm-hmm. we actually did the episode and it exists out in their consciousness somewhere.
1: Yeah, it's like when somebody has a dream about you and they're like, you gave me great advice. And you're like, well, great. My work here is done and I didn't even do anything.
0: I don't know. There are so few situations in which. I would pursue it as doggedly as we did with this one. Mm-hmm. But the reason is because we got to talk with fangirl Jean. Can you describe fangirl Jean and like what our experience with her tends to be?
1: I mean, I felt while recording this episode, the way I remember feeling in the best moments I had in college and in academia of just like hearing someone explain something to you in a way that's both extremely learned and passionate and they're sharing information with you, but they're also showing you how to think about something Mm. and offering you a way in. And as someone who, you know, as Marvel movies come out, tends to just feel like, oh, my God, there's so many of them. Leave me alone. Just just go on without me. I mean, it's funny to say that these movies aren't accessible, but like I'm at least one person who finds them inaccessible because I'm just like, "Where where do I start? What are the good ones? Like, what is the goal? What are the ones that will make me feel like we're being reductive and just trying to make some money? And what are the ones where we can actually see what telling stories about superheroes can actually do to to further us as humans. And I just, I want her to do whatever she wants, but I would love for her to teach a course in superhero movies or just be <laughs> able to be in charge of her own Marvel movies. Like you make 50 of them a year, just give one to her. It wouldn't be that hard.
0: <laughs> Agreed. I love that Jean gets critical Yeah. with joy. You know, she's like, she's like joyful Derrida. <laughs> you are learning. And it's also fun because she is enwrapped with enthusiasm.
1: Yeah. And I think that talking critically about media at this point, it's in a way more accessible than ever just because of the sheer amount of media criticism that the average person with any kind of internet connection has access to. It's an aspect of the internet that I really enjoy. And I also feel like it can repel people with this idea of like, That the way to make this approach is like, what am I allowed to like and what am I not? What is good? What is bad? And this kind of punitive mindset about it, which I think it can be easy to fall into or feel like is the only way to approach this kind of thing that, you know, this is a mode of criticism that I love and that just makes me so happy to be a part of in some way. How do we critique the things that we love? Because to love something is to want it to be and do better.
0: Mm, That's so well put. Before we dive into this one, do you have any thoughts?
1: I'm just, Yeah, I'm just so happy with this one. I'm so happy that we persisted despite the fact that we were cursed by Loki himself, which is what became the running joke. It's just such a joy to have Jean here with us. Like, I love all our guests equally, but she gave us so much. She brought such passion to this. I just think everyone should listen to what she has to say because it'll make you smarter and it will make you joyful.
0: You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon at patreon.com slash you are good. When you support us on Patreon, you get bonus episodes. We have a bonus episode coming up relatively soon about the movie Julie and Julia. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is also made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory. They are a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine, with offices in Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine, fine folks at NAC Factory. The music of You Are Good Volume 1 is available to purchase on Bandcamp, and it's also streaming. So you can find it on whatever streaming services you use to listen to music. Listen to it. Share it with your friends. I hope everything is good out there. Next week is Thanksgiving. Just so, you know, in case you are prepping for future episodes, we are going to cover Raising Arizona. But it's just a Sarah and me conversation. So, uh, yeah, it's an intimate one. I love those ones. All right, let's get crack a seed, How's it going over there?
1: It's going great. This is the podcast so nice. We made it again. (laughs) (laughs)
0: so we recorded this episode once before and as happens when you record dozens and dozens of things there was a thing that happened and uh uh, so we're recording it again because we love the guest and we love the subject so what are we talking about today so we're
1: talking about Thor Ragnarok and I appreciate your commitment to not snitching because it was my recording that failed in a way that we still don't understand because it's like you can hear me talking to my cats Yes. And then none of the actual conversation. It's so bizarre. I blame Loki.
0: I, this is inevitable. For people who make podcasts, you should know that at some point you will have your heart broken. At several points. It, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. So we we've both done it. Who are we joined by? But fangirl Jean. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. <laughs>
1: That was acapella
0: Led Zeppelin. Gene, thank you so much for doing this with us again. Sarah, w- have you revisited Thor Ragnarok lately?
1: Yeah, I revisited it this morning. And I feel like I had all these observations that feel new to me, but which I probably said last time. <laughs>
0: Do you want to give a, a roundabout or a explanation of what happens in this movie or just generally set up the tone? What, what what do we go through here?
1: So specifically, the opening of this movie is an opening that makes me go, yes, and I would like to deconstruct <laughs> why that is. And what. so we open with... Thor... We just set the tone, I think, for just everything that is to follow in the opening scene where Thor is chained up in a cage with a skeleton dude who he's talking to as the audience proxy. And then he battles... By the way, I'm not going to remember anyone's name. I'm doing an Alex for this one. Gene can give us all the actual... It's Surtur. <laughs> Surtur, which sounds like a meat substitute. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> he uh, does some battle with Surtur, who is a big, fiery, demon-looking guy who has a crown who Thor thought was a big eyebrow. And then he's like, because that's what heroes do. And he's like, sorry, I timed that wrong. And then the hammer of Thor flies into his hand. And he does battle and then things get a little bit hairy and he gets portaled, stargated back to Asgard where he lives. And there he finds out that Loki has assumed the role of their father Odin while he was away and is up to generally no good. And then Odin dies and his death, I believe, unleashes... Hella slash Kate Blanchett like vamping it up as a villain, who is Odin's first kid and first heir, and who's like, I don't like these second marriage <laughs> children, um, which was very resonant for me. I act- well, I have older half brothers who are very sweet and wonderful, but being like the second family is weird, and this movie explores that. Thor and Loki in a kind of mid, like they could have gone anywhere, I think. And so it's very interesting that this movie sends them to a garbage planet where Thor is enslaved as a gladiator and has to gladiate for Jeff Goldblum and meets Korg, who's my favorite character in all of Marvel after my exhaustive viewing of like five of the 3,000 Marvel movies. (laughs) So Korg, voiced by the director Taika Waititi, is a wonderful, large, blue, sweet-tempered, failed revolutionary who is kind of the house parent of the gladiator matches. And while on the trash planet, Thor meets 142, aka Valkyrie, who previously defeated Hela and then is the last of the remaining Valkyries. She's from Asgard and she's like, Kind of like a Nick Nolte type character, I would say. Although obviously much prettier. But like, she's, she's got a lot of baggage. She just wants to like drink and hang out with the Hulk. The Hulk is also there. No, makes sense because Sakaar is like a
2: garbage Las Vegas of the universe. Oh, and she yeah. is very much in her leaving Las Vegas
1: era in, oh, when like she's that. in Sakaar. But she can't drink and- herself to death because she's a Valkyrie. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- this movie could be called like Thor leaving Sakaar. <laughs> 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 and so basically the kind of midpoint of the movie is Thor having to go through this process of being stripped of his glory and also like we get to see him thor with short hair it's a very like samson kind of thing that happens to him
0: i like that that was your go-to because my go-to was when metallica cut their hair for the first time in the mid-90s oh i
1: didn't know about that did they wow
0: oh yeah oh yeah huh. your hair when uh load came out and it was like a big deal because you're like well these guys are kind of like good looking <laughs>
1: This movie has somehow the vibe of a high school dance recital to enter Sandman, I think. So basically Thor has to kind of free people from their trauma and also himself and also literally free them from being gladiators under forced to fight for the amusement of Jeff Goldblum. So, he, you know, Valkyrie... Reencounters the trauma of losing all of her people, all of her fellow warriors, and decides to go back to Asgard. And Hulk gets turned back into Bruce Banner by seeing a video of Natasha Romanoff. I don't fully understand the relationship there. I want to learn about that. And then they go back to Asgard to prevent Ragnarok, the apocalyptic end of Asgard, and defeat Hela. And then the big revelation, spoiler, is Thor figuring out that Asgard is not a place, it's a people. And they have to destroy Asgard, the place, to save Asgard, the people. And Led Zeppelin's immigrant song plays again for anyone who missed the message there. Mm -hmm. And then they (laughs) set out for Earth, the end. And it's wonderful.
0: Beautiful. I was wondering why, you know, originally you wanted to talk about Loki and then what your relationship with this movie is. There's a lot of complexity
2: around why he's such an appealing character. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. the obvious stuff of, like, Tom Hiddleston is... Uh, a conventionally attractive white dude with a British accent, usually going to sell well, um, especially <laughs> in America. But the, like, Loki's character is, I know in the series, he's supposedly going through a redemption arc. I'd argue it's not really about redemption. It's more about personal growth, which I think American uh, media gets those two things confused. Mm. But uh, for me, I think the reason part of why we went and decided to do this was that Thor is like an integral part of Loki's character and vice versa. Loki is a big part of Thor's character. When we talk about the show, You Are Good, a big arc And a big, like, core root part of Thor is that he is really the guy that's telling everybody you're good like he and specifically for me was when you uh, guys talked about why you decided to change the name of the podcast to You Are Good it's citing back to that seed in Young Frankenstein where Frankenstein the thin aristocratic kind of manic you know genius is clutching the face of this sweet giant (laughs) well-meaning being going you are good that Thor and Loki are the absolute Reverse of that, like mm. Thor is the bulky, well-meaning, powerful creature grasping this small twink, just going,
0: "You're done."
1: <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and then this movie is—I feel like him doing that with with Hulk and Valkyrie, and just like that's mm-hmm. his, part of his power, which I love as a a concept that we're you know raising kids on
0: we have this dog named wheezy who's a big dumb monster and one of the things we do when she's like into her monstrousness is we like we pat her head slowly and we say soft baby soft baby <laughs> and like that's what that's what Thor's doing to everybody else. he like literally does that to hulk at some point sun's going
1: down <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, like, you know, I know a lot of people in Phantom have always compared Thor to, like, a golden retriever, which I think it misbetrays the chaotic destruction of golden retrievers, but also, <laughs> like, a disservice to all breeds of dogs. For me, he has big good boy energy. <laughs> it, it doesn't even occur to him that you couldn't be as good as that he sees you to be, mm-hmm. and that, that there's an aspect that I think you... It, that a lot of people who love animals experience where you experience seeing yourself through the eyes of a creature. That's just like, you're awesome. (laughs) And they keep reinforcing it to you to the point that you're like, well, I mean,
1: I guess, (laughs) I guess I could be okay. I guess just keep looking at me with that face every day and maybe gradually I'll start to believe it.
0: Exactly. So theme wise, like Sarah, just spoke to so many things. Where do we start, Jean?
2: We could start at the beginning of, uh, you know, that. A fantastic introduction opening scene, which both plays with the archetypes of hero stories, you know, as Thor himself cites, that's what heroes do. Mm-hmm. And that we're presented with a situation that seems pretty stereotypical of a heroic and definitely comic book type situation that breaks our expectations, which Taika Waititi loves to do, like out of the gate. That sets the expectations of Goe. Plus it's also like just a gorgeous scene the whole film is just like an airbrushed viking scene on the side of a 1970s van
1: (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) i've seen that van and been like how much do these vans run exactly and yeah
2: (laughs) right right Probably the most colorful Marvel movie. Feel like I know that Taika Waititi talked about the fact that Jack Kirby, the illustrator from Marvel, was a huge influence on the color palette for the film and a lot of the design choices of being because the car really does look bigger than than anything like it it, with no relation to our world whatsoever it just looks bold colors odd shapes of things Mm. weird looking people that aren't necessarily people and what is interesting about that setup and, and execution is that that's happening through the whole story of like we're presented with things like oh well here's loki he's a bad guy he did a bad thing but his story kind of takes our expectations of that and turns them inside out. Same thing with Valkyrie. Valkyrie is the retired lawman who's jaded and disillusioned hmm. with, you know, his career in a, you know, border town, getting drunk and trying to drink himself to death. But in this, this story, that's a woman, you get in a woman of color that gets to like reown that narrative, retake it over and for a, a black woman to, you know, reflect that idea of like how tired she is mm-hmm. and how she followed the rules and the rules let her down. You know, how can she reclaim her power and her? her self-identity, but again and again, like Bruce, like Bruce having to like, we get to see the Hulk and instead of Bruce being all angsty about, oh, it sucks to be a white man with a lot of power. It's more of just like, wow, I got to like have a road time for like two years where I was like the most popular dude in the fraternity <laughs> and everybody loved me. And I don't know how to deal with it because I've shaped my entire identity around having seven PhDs. <laughs> That's what I like about Thor himself, because in his MCU incarnation, I think they never really knew what to do with him. Mm. You know, they kind of just made him, depending on the movie and the filmmaker behind it, you know, clueless jock character, or he was just the the Shakespearean spouting dude he indicates a lot of the complexity and complications that especially men have with their own masculinity and masculine ideals, because on paper Thor is a masculine ideal. He's Mm -hmm. got the cut body and he's always a hero. He is worthy. He literally has a magical item that tells you he is worthy of being a hero every time he picks it up. Mm -hmm. And yet it's been really difficult through the MCU to be able to like, make him a person which is super interesting to me and this movie i feel like really made him a full-fleshed human who was hilarious and earnest and really supportive and sweet and really like this is thor and you cited you made me almost cry you cited The original Superman who will always be my Superman, Christopher Reeves' Superman, which was perfect explanation of the type of soft masculinity that has such overwhelming, you know, nigh-invincible power, but speaks softly, lives in deference to the, the most marginalized people in the world. And that is very much what Thor's persona, I think, has come to represent is he is the guy that, that seems like the broiest of bros, but he absolutely, you know, has the feminine mystique memorized. <laughs> Overall, I think that this movie nailed him as a character, but also kind of kicking and screaming, pulled the MCU into a new era of exploring the characters and stories. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I love this TED Talk.
1: And I'm so happy that you also love Christopher Reeve's Superman. At some kind of relatively early pandemic stage, because now the pandemic is like an onion. We have all these layers of what we went through and what we were consoling ourselves with. I was just watching a lot of superhero movies and the one that really stuck with me and like stayed in my heart that I hadn't watched probably since I was a tween was the 1976 Superman. I was like there's something so special about this movie that I feel like we like went all the way away from as if we were flying around the earth. <laughs> <laughs> and this movie makes me feel like we've come home again because I feel like like if you're watching like a Nolan Batman movie you're like on the dark side of the moon away from the you know the idea of like our power comes from like being earnest and believing in people and i think almost like the superman and lois lane or the clark and lois lane relationship in that movie reminds me of thor and valkyrie because it's like you have someone who's just really had to make themselves like pretty hard and cynical and is very disarmed by the fact that somebody can look at them and see in them what What Superman or what Thor sees in them in this movie. And I feel like it's another step to have that happen, not even as a romance, but just as something that people can offer to each other out of mutual esteem and love, even if there's not, you know, sexy flying time on the table.
2: Thank you for citing that, because I think one of the fundamental problems that new adapters have with Superman is that they don't understand Lois as a character, Mm -hmm. and they don't understand that Superman is Lois's biggest Mm fanboy, and that especially within the context of the 76 Superman, you have Lois Lane, who has everything against her. She's a woman, you see her as the archetypical woman in a boys club, Mm -hmm. you know. No, she's tough as nails. She's on. She, she's loud. She's demanding. She will get what she wants. He's
1: violently typing <laughs>
2: <laughs> right? But to him, here is this woman who literally could get shot and get killed and she still won't give up her purse she does not care like she's gonna throw herself into danger to do what she needs to do and here he is bulletproof (laughs) could lift a building and he's terrified Mm. in that situation because Mm -hmm. she could get hurt and for me that is what an nigh-omniscient being would look at someone like a woman or a woman of color who has all the vulnerability and still gets up every morning and fights every time. And that is why Superman puts on the cape and protects humanity is he's like, that's the human spirit. Right. And I think that that is part of the DNA of this Thor. He has that, well, there's other people that get up every morning and they don't have any of the things that I have and they still get up and do it every time. And I feel like that is the philosophy that comes through for him. That is like the sum total of like why he's so, why he has this contagious hope.
0: It's so interesting that you say that, like Tony's arc over the course is taking this from like an intellectual ideal and then putting it into a practical ideal towards the end. Like we, we love the fact that he's able to be like, oh, this all relates to like being an actual human in the world, loving people. And like, this is important, like this, these are important ideals for me to have. Mm -hmm. Whereas like Thor the entire time is bringing that ideal to people in a practical way. So you're saying that like Thor, that's the very good boy in Thor. (laughs) Is that what's happening?
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. He inherently sees the good in other people mm. and sees the potential and sees he really honestly believes everything's going to work out at the end. His view of hope of that through hopeful and his commitment to go and do this stuff is a very different type of examination of power and responsibility than Tony Stark, who had all the power, never accepted the responsibility, and over the course of his character little by little, kind of like, oh, I guess I'll take responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. And I'll take responsibility for that. Feeling feelings is really difficult, la la la. (laughs) (laughs) You know, again, I think it's an an interesting comparison of the types of masculinity that the media and we as a culture over the years have held up and said, that's a guy's guy versus like, is that a guy's guy or is that an everybody guy? Mm when Superman came out in 76 and where we were, especially in America, mm-hmm. it was like the darkest of days in that mm-hmm. era, the seventies of just, you know,
1: Ford to city
2: drop dead. <laughs> right. We had like the oil crisis of so gas prices. We had rolling blackouts in New York. We had shootings. We had serial killers. Everything was really dark. Cinema was really mm-hmm. dark and gritty, especially in New York. And I feel like it, probably wasn't a conscious choice, but I think for me, going back and watching, seeing all of that hopefulness in a very recognizable New York City of the Mm -hmm. 70s, if, to me, it kind of mirrors where we're coming to again here in America of of where we've had the like Christopher Nolan gritty. Oh, it's so angsty to be a millionaire that everybody <laughs> thinks is really attractive, but I'm super sad about my parents dying, so I'm gonna beat up poor Asian people <laughs> in an attempt to like feel in control of my life. <laughs>
1: <Sorry>. <laughs> but like, yeah, that, I mean, seriously,
2: that's the synopsis. <laughs> You know, I think it's a cyclical process, but I think we're coming back around of where these stories of not just naive hope, Mm. but general like, no, we've gone through stuff and we're still able to rise. Mm. And I think Thor Ragnarok, while on the surface seems like a very fun popcorn action, bright colors, shiny fun movie, it actually has some really deep painful stuff that everybody is working through yeah. you know this is the gift of taika Watiti. he's able to balance those themes between dealing with really hard gut-wrenching terrible things like the literal destruction of your world with funny rock monsters that lost their revolution because they didn't print enough pamphlets <sighs> It is something that a lot of Maori c- reviewers had talked mm. about that that is a very Maori sense of humor as things are terrible you're also like seeing the absurdity in the world as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you just talk a bit about Takeaway TT for anyone who has not had the pleasure? And t- t- just to understand also the significance of him doing what he had been doing, and then coming in and making a making a Marvel movie. Just talk a bit about that as well.
2: Yeah. So Taika Waititi is a New Zealand filmmaker who really like established himself. I think it was his first short that was a beautiful black and white film that got nominated for an Oscar. So like out mm-hmm. of the gate. People might know his stuff, obviously. Uh, what we do in the shadows—very sweet vampires, <laughs> so sweet. Oh. <laughs> but also, uh, Hunt for the Wilder People. I think one of Sam Neill's best performances mm. as the grumpiest of grumpy old men.
0: The best dad becoming dad, <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, David? And like all of his films, deal with really. Hot for the Wilder people deals with a kid who's in the juvenile justice system in New Zealand mm. and gets sent into a foster situation. And he's had to deal with a lot of hard things, mm. but through it, it also he has this very dry observational humor in his work that balances the really heavy subject matter with a lot of humor, which, again, like I said, like, Maoris talk about that. That's a very Maori...
0: He plays, like, a joyful, lovable Hitler in Jojo Rabbit.
2: Yes! His imaginary friend who is a joyful Hitler.
1: (laughs) I haven't seen this movie yet, and I guess I'm like, I know he threads that needle, but I can't wait to see, like, how he does that.
2: I would say, if you haven't seen Boy... I would watch that first Mm -hmm. because I feel like Jojo Rabbit is, you know, a much more expansive type of that topic, Mm -hmm. but boy is about a young boy who has a not that reliable, somewhat absentee father played by Taika. Mm -hmm. And we get to see like this young Maori boy dealing with poverty and life that's difficult when you're a kid, but especially when you're, you know, indigenous kid of color in a colony, Mm -hmm. but with his vibrant, imaginary world he casts his father as a star in every one of his fantasies and it includes if you've seen the iconic picture wherein taika watiti recreates the michael jackson photo where he's laying down in a white suit mm. <laughs> but there's taika watiti in a white suit with a kitten with like a purplish background <laughs> you know it's a wonderful balance talk about like why our dads which i feel definitely gave him The absolute perfect pedigree to attack Thor and Odin and the whole complexity Mm -hmm. of both family issues within the Thor franchise, but also the themes of colonialism. Mm -hmm. Taika Waititi is Maori. He's
1: also uh, Jewish. So it's like this double heritage of like laugh or else you'll cry. Yes, right. And like not to pick on the Nolan Batman too much, but like I'm going to anyway. Sorry. He's talking about these themes in this movie where it's like, we have to destroy our entire home in order to survive. We can never go back. It's been blown into smithereens in space. You compare that to Batman and he's like, my girlfriend's dead. (laughs) Everybody has problems, but like, I don't know, maybe like some therapy would do you good and you can stop taking out your baggage on this on random street crime. Doers, like the Nolan Batman ethos feels to me a perfect distillation of post 9-11 America where it's like, we are Mm. the strongest and the most powerful country in the world, but like something traumatic happened to us. And because of that, we're going to have this narrative for decades about how like we get to use just indiscriminate force against everybody because... we suffered something. And that's what that means. You you just lose all Mm. sense of proportion. Like the idea of telling a superhero story from the perspective of like, how do you handle loss if it's not like a singular moment in your life, but just like loss after loss after loss and grief after grief after grief. And you have to live in a way that kind of you grow through that trauma and Into a a philosophy about being constructive rather than destructive because there's some kind of acceptance of like trauma happens to people, and the fact that this happened once to me doesn't mean I can do whatever I want forever.
2: Mm. Let me point out that Batman in the story of like, you know, a personal thing that happened to me that overwhelms me with grief and sadness and loss and instead of going to therapy I'm going to make it everybody else's problem (laughs) is literally the origin story of mass shooters and it really says something about the fact of how appealing that recycling that idea of like I'm a manly man who will not talk about my feelings I will punch other people instead seems to keep being popular Mm -hmm. while also like fostering real life violence too but we I'll go
0: into that. And Batman, by the way, for sure, over this, the course of his career, has to have as high a body count of innocent people as, like, a mass Oh, shooter.
1: yeah. He has to be killing some kids' parents just as, like, as collateral, right?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely.
2: Even if we go with the no-gun era of Batman, we're still talking about a culpability of participation in mm-hmm. the justice system and mm-hmm. the prison system, which we know literally from the comics and his canon that that system is broken Mm -hmm. and does not work and yet buddy still keeps taking all these people who are just having to be henchmen because they can't get any other jobs you know to prison that gets routinely broken out of and like the system's broken Mm -hmm. that's that's why one of the rotating questions through canon is always like why doesn't batman kill the joker because like he just puts him in prison and he keeps getting out la 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 Because they're in love. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is actually, as much as Lois Lane is a part of Clark's character Mm -hmm. and Superman's Mm -hmm. character, it says a lot that Joker sits in that exact position Mm -hmm. for Batman, which for me has always been a reflection of, again, like, I know that there's been a couple of comic book runs have done it where it has explored the idea that the Joker is actually another personality Mm -hmm. of Bruce Wayne's, Mm -hmm. which shows like the mirror aspect of they're both mentally ill people who are not getting the health they need, Mm. who are really harming every single person around Mm. them. Wrote that back over to Thor, bring up a great point of that the perspective of someone who is not white, who is not wealthy, who is not from a marginalized group, and how many of us have had to adapt to grief, of marginalization, oppression, and yet still get up every morning and learn how to laugh, that like a lot of us have a history of having a really great sense of humor. Not to say that Taika Waititi is the same as Mel Brooks, but I feel like he's picked up that legacy of teaching yeah. generations of goy how to laugh at themselves and to laugh at the world even as we're crying yeah.
0: anytime you know anyone would be like well like jews run hollywood and it's like well thank god <laughs> <laughs> and it's, first of all that's like a you know silly conspiracy theory but, but if
1: like- it were true wouldn't that be great <laughs>
0: right <laughs> Right, exactly. And someone had to bring humor to America, like, and it most certainly wasn't going to be wasps, like we can say that. Right. (laughs)
2: Right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. This version of Thor is a great reflection of, like, deconstructing the myth of, oh, it sucks to have power, which I feel is like the power dynamic version of the money can't fix everything. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, it fixed a lot of things. And we're so used to this, what I call the white man's burden story mm-hmm. of that. Oh, it sucks to have power. And I just want to be quote unquote normal, which is just saying I want to be like a white mediocre dude that doesn't have to try at anything. So I hate those stories because obviously it's like, you you know, if you, Put a person of color into that position and give them power. They just get shit done. My best example is Buffy the vampire slayer. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I really hated Buffy's character was like, she spent way too much time whining about being powerful. This is why I like all the other slayers, especially the ones that were slayers of color were just like, what do you mean? Like, I'm literally saving people's lives. I don't know why you were upset about this, you know? <laughs> and, and I do see that reflection in, What I like about Thor's character is that I think he sees that potential in other people in that way of that, I just have to give you a piece Mm -hmm. so that you know, because you are way more capable than you realize you are. He doesn't see giving power or support to other people as a takeaway from himself. Mm -hmm. Thor Ragnarok is a team movie. If you compare it to a lot of the other Marvel films that are much more of like a lone hero, Thor Ragnarok is actually much more like a Disney princess film where like the team of friends get together, which is always to me a very inherent feminine hero's journey of like, learning to set up a team of friends and to support each other. And it's not going off. on He never like is like, I'm going to go off on my own and fix all this. Mm-hmm. He is very much like, come with me, help me go defeat my sister. Come on. It'll be great. It'll be lots of fun. We have a fun name. His sense of power is not about him solely. It's about, Everybody mm-hmm. and him wanting to help everybody and group everybody together. Anyway, so back to with TT and specifically Thor Ragnarok. I think one of the interesting aspects we talked about, like Thor thinking that he had to stop Ragnarok. Mm in order to, you know, save the day, which again, in in this story is a subversion of the typical story, hero story we would see where we have to stop the worst. We're stopping the apocalypse, Mm -hmm. canceling the apocalypse. And here the apocalypse has to happen to save everybody. I am not Jewish. (laughs) I am indigenous, but I'm not Jewish. But for me, like I thought a lot about how it hit for me all the same places that Exodus stories Mm -hmm. did for me when I watched them as a child. Mm -hmm. So, like, obviously, The Ten Commandments, that was the one I grew up with. But younger generations, it's Prince of Egypt, which is a cinematic classic. But also, like, that sense of we have to leave everything we know for the promise of a
1: better... Time for us. This movie is Fiddler on the Roof. Oh my God. I guess.
0: Fiddler on the Roof. Yes. Sarah, can you speak on behalf of all Jews? I will speak certainly
1: on behalf of, of Fiddler on the Roof, at least, which is
0: <laughs>
1: Fiddler on the Roof is a wonderful musical adapted into a film in the 70s by Norman Jewison, who was hired because he had the word Jew in his name despite not being Jewish. That's true. <laughs> 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 and I didn't make that up. <laughs> and, the you know, it's uh, Tevi the Milkman has five daughters. Three of them are of marriageable age. So everybody gets married. We sing songs about it. And then as we're having this lovely marriage plot, we're watching basically the czar creeping in more and more to have pogroms and eventually exile the Jews of Anatevka, which is the village where everybody lives in this movie. And, you know, we open with tradition, just how do we know how to live? How do we, what do we do? It's our tradition. Like this is, Anatevka is our home. The end of the story is that everyone has to leave Anatevka and move largely to the United States. And it's the same <laughs> ending. And Thor ends with a lot more humor and a lot more, you know, well, we're going to see all these people again, like 25 times and all the movies that are coming out pretty soon. And we don't get to have a fiddler on the roof cinematic universe, although that would be amazing. But I feel like it ends with the same story or the same message, which is we've always been exiled. We've always carried who we are, not in the place where we live, but in the traditions that we have. And now we're carrying that to another place. It's a very similar ending. That makes me so happy. Well, then also there's the fact that Superman, I mean, there's a famous Jules Pfeiffer speech about this that was then cribbed for Kill Bill, but like Superman is also a metaphor for the Jewish diaspora. He was created by, I think Mm. both of his creators were Jewish and, and the idea is, you know, Superman, he really is Superman and Clark Kent is the costume and the cape is his baby blanket and that just the true self is the diasporic self.
2: Right. Like, and also like a Jewish snatching of the ubermensch ideal and remaking it as someone who is using their power to service the least, you know, the most marginalized and the least powerful. I'm a Jewish, but I can speak to the indigenous aspect Mm. of that, that idea of beautiful Asgard is people, not a place having a culture and existing away from your homeland is definitely resonant for a lot of indigenous people, especially uh, indigenous diaspora. Most indigenous people don't live on land that belongs to us because of displacement. That also really resonates with this idea that colonialism often strips from us, even from white people, of that your identity has to be tied to these very solid, specific things and something that's given to you by the people in power, this is who you are and that's it. Opposed to a lot of uh, indigenous communities who like, you know, blood quantum um, was a thing in- invented by colonial America. And it's not something that exists. So this has always been a, a weird thing for m- myself as uh, this whole concept of people, you know, saying thirds and fourths and whatnot. Uh, a lot of Pacifica people, you're just, you just are. I'm biracial, so so I'm not, like, half. I just am both, and that's a thing that can be, and that I can be, you know, Tongan. I don't have to, like, roll out a scroll of, or do a DNA test for that. That's who I am, and I don't have to, like, you know, be in touch with my homeland to still be who I am. The example that Thor Ragnarok shows us is that an indigenous Jewish man of color can create this story that has a white dude as the hero mm-hmm. and yet tell an incredibly distinctly indigenous and Jewish story. Within that framework that is incredibly diverse and really super queer, and yet it's still really accessible to everybody and everybody has a good time and has fun, this argument that diversifying or inclusion is exclusion of white people is kind of silly.
1: Thor is like the argument against the critical race theory panic.
2: Right? Like, there is a way to tell these stories where Thor is going through an experience that is absolutely relatable to a lot of people who don't look like him. Mm. I love all of the different layers of when uh, Thor discovers that Loki's been pretending to be Odin, it's at a play of (laughs) Loki's version of the Loki's great sacrifice for Asgard, which is essentially like a a redux of the events of the second Thor movie, with beautiful casting of Matt Damon as Loki, hidden Matt Damon.
0: And who does Sam Neil play? Like that's my Sam
2: Neil plays Odin.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that so much.
2: What I like is you know this is all a very funny situation, but it's an interesting commentary on how Loki has internalized how to rewrite history to suit oneself. Mm. Anyway, so the idea, the story that's told by Odin is that after beating back the Jotuns into Jotunheim, he finds this baby abandoned at their stronghold and takes pity on this child and brings him home and adopts him as his own. And we see in a flashback in the first movie where when Odin's holding baby Loki, baby Loki, Jotuns are blue and that the baby changes to human Mm. or as guardian, as Odin's looking him. And one of the things I think is interesting, a lot of fans assumed that situation was Odin changing Loki. Mm. And I had always internalized it of that was a survival instinct mm. on Loki's part of changing himself to look mm. like the predator that had just picked him mm. up.
0: Mm. He's code switching, like as a Yeah,
2: yes, absolutely. So an interesting interpretation of what a child who lives under colonial rule Mm -hmm. is taken by a colonizer and raised to think that he is a colonizer and then discovers in the first movie he discovered, he learns that he's actually Jotun. And he even says, I'm the monster that mothers tell their children about. Mm -hmm. So much about how Loki processes who he the role he's supposed to be playing in the story of his life is he is the bad guy because of how he was born Mm. we've learned in part of the what if canon in this alternate universe odin gave the baby back to the jotun and we learned through that that like loki's family didn't abandon him Mm. Which is something that a lot of fans suspected was that Odin told a different story than what really happened, that he likely stole a child. Right now, where a lot of people, non-Native, non-Indigenous people, are learning about the atrocities that have taken place in Indigenous children being stolen away to boarding Mm -hmm. schools. And now the bodies of children have been found at those school Mm -hmm. sites. I have this conversation with my friend Stitch a lot. find them under uh, Stitch uh, Mixed Media Mm -hmm. They've said it so well of, why does he feel like us when we talk about Loki? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, like, despite the fact that Loki is played by a white, cis, British dude, his story resonates a lot with a lot of people of color of mm-hmm. being brought up in a society, told that you're like everybody else, but knowing deep down that you're not. And I think what we see in the play is Loki taking those lessons and using that propaganda machine to glorify himself. Mm. And it's also a foreshadowing of what Hela reveals, which is all of Asgardian history that Thor was taught as a lie, as she shatters the ceiling in the palace and shows the true story of how Asgard dominated the nine realms.
0: So she shows up her existence is inherently disruptive to this like false narrative. And in Mm -hmm. one way or another, like Loki's entire existence throughout this universe is itself disruptive, not because he is an inherent trickster though. He is an inherent trickster, but because just his mere existence, reconciling that existence in how he's presented in the world he's presented and the identity that's imposed upon him is like inherently not correct, right? Mm -hmm. So he's like constantly trying to establish some sense (laughs) of self in the face of all of that. And like, it creates disorder, not because he inherently creates disorder, but because there is a great, like, kind of lie told about who and how he is.
2: Mm. Yeah. And I I, and I think that's part of why he is, you know, a great example of a great antagonist. Just in, you know, in my opinion, a great antagonist is showing a fundamental flaw in the world mm. of the story or the protagonists themselves. So they're a reflection of what's wrong with the world or what the protagonist doesn't like about themselves or the thing that they need Mm. to change there's a still a lot of like heated academic debating about whether loki actually was a god Mm. versus a position like the loki Mm. and specifically as a force of disruption i liked the comparison of If we thought of Loki like a jester, Hmm. not just like somebody who makes you laugh, but a person who has the ability to speak truth to power and disrupt it through that, Loki functions that way, probably as a person who could dress up Thor in a dress, could take these people of power down a peg. And that those figures exist in multiple cultures. So like another example is the biblical literature debate about whether the snake mm-hmm. or Satan himself is a person rather than again, a position. And that that idea of that something that challenges you and disrupts
1: the, your life or the way that things work is actually a good thing. Right. And who's revealing that, like, God is a bit of a dick with regards to this Job guy I've always felt.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, right. Or some reveal of the fallibility of, like, the projected order, which I really yeah. like because that it's, yes. like, it's going to turn out this way. We're going to tell, tell this story that it's this thing. And he's like, definitely not. you didn't
1: say the magic word.
0: <laughs> the, the Dennis
1: Nedry of the Pantheon, if you will. <laughs>
0: there's a couple of questions I want to make sure that we get to Sarah. What was that question that you asked? What makes you go? Oh
1: yeah. What makes us go? Yes. Like in any movie and specifically superhero movies, why does this movie deliver and how do others put their energy in the wrong direction? Tell people how to make a superhero movie because they need some help. Yeah. Well, here's the easy building blocks.
2: A superhero um, story is a power fantasy. So you, you want to make, allow people to inhabit a character or a situation in which they can see themselves or feel the exhilaration of having power. Why this movie especially is, gives us so many repetitive scenes of feeling like, whoa, yes, (laughs) comes from, but the lower you start, The higher you climb, the greater the yes. (laughs) So in that opening scene, he starts out in a cage chained up, and literally in what kind of looks like a hell dimension, Mm -hmm. like underground. And as he continues to climb, so does our excitement. Mm. As he continues to defeat all the obstacles that are his way, our excitement builds. So underdog stories are really popular for that exact reason, because a lot of underdog stories are power fantasies for people who either believe themselves to be marginalized, or actually marginalized. And within this situation, I feel that it gives us a repeated, like, where we emerge and then we knock down further mm-hmm. and we emerge and then knock down mm-hmm. further. The way to build tension within a story is essentially you trace your protagonist up a tree and then you spend the rest of the time trying to get them out of a tree. <laughs> and I like the reverse of that, of that, like, every time you get them out of the hole, you whack them all them back down into a, another hole that's even deeper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> More deeper holes! (laughs) Right? Especially Marvel follows this recipe of that close to the final act... Everything has to look like it's not going to work out mm. at all. And you're like, to- you have to be, you have to demoralize the audience that they can't see a way out of the situation. And then, you know, whoo, then the thing happens and the hero emerges successful. And what I think is different about this film is that we get to that point where there literally is no way to win. And Thor turns to everybody and goes, you know what? Losing's the right answer. Mm.
1: Yeah, and which is so unexpected at this point in superhero movies because I feel like it has become so predictable for superheroes to set to have to save the world again or or the whole universe at this point and like and so just deviating from that script I think just pulls the rug out from under the audience in the best way or, or me anyway. A lot of superhero stories have a nationalistic
2: bent mm-hmm. of that. Victory is returning everything back to the way it was. Mm. And what I think is interesting in this one is like, no, it's okay because we're just safe. Everybody Mm. that we care about is safe. Mm. To me, this is a much more satisfying ending because it reinforced what was happening the whole way along where it didn't matter where Thor was. As long as he had people with him, he was good.
0: Yeah, if it is a matter of like simply saving the universe. Again. Yeah, again, and the universe is saved and like you still have two and a half jobs and have to work like 70 hours a week. You know, you're like, well, thank God the universe is still saved, but I've moved the goalpost in which, like, uh, my life and satisfaction is in the context of just annihilation.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because of the events of Endgame, half of all life in the universe was snapped out of existence for five years, and then heroically, quote unquote, everybody's brought back. And now the subsequent stories that have been taking place after that have interrogated, well, was that good and for who? How that trauma, which is amazing that all of this happened before the pandemic occurred and that it's now resonating so much with us of like what that level of grief was losing that many people what effect it had on the culture and on the people because especially when falcon moon soldier they explored the idea of that when half of the population disappeared all of a sudden refugees and migrants Issues weren't an issue because people needed people to do jobs. They needed pe. There were there wasn't a housing crisis anymore because there was houses. McDonald's
1: was like, please, for the love of God, come work here. God, it's so familiar, (laughs) right?
2: That post SNAP first SNAP world was one where borders didn't really exist and people Mm. were coming together because they had a shared trauma. When everybody came back, those problems that existed before it all just reemerged immediately. Everybody just went back to everybody in power, went back to business as usual. I mean, obviously we don't want to not save all those people's lives, but was the way everything was, was that a happy ending or did Mm -hmm. that just highlight the problems that existed already?
1: Yeah. One of the problems that you're articulating also that I haven't been able to put into words is that I think at their worst, they can be about relentlessly upholding and defending the status quo as if that's such a wonderful thing. And that some of the positive capacity they have is to actually make you think about like, what else is there? Like, what if the status quo is unavailable? What if that's not the ultimate good? What if preserving the way things are means preserving having the wrong people in power? Or at least an unchecked power. And one of the things I love and believe in about narrative is that we can learn things conceptually through these characters that we care about, that ideally we can then, without even necessarily notice what we're doing, bring empathetically into the world that we really do live in. And I think that at their worst, superheroes are just kind of like dismissive of human beings and of the kind of Plebes who are populating these cities that they're always saving from aliens or whatever. And at their best, like, like we've been talking about this whole time, like they don't always have to love humans themselves, although Thor does and Superman does, but they show us, like, we are the humans watching these movies. Like, as far as I know, like all of the audience members for superhero movies are humans. (laughs) Like, none of us are supers (laughs) again that I'm aware of. And so you can escape your humanity if you're uncomfortable with it. But if the story doesn't bring you back to valuing and thinking more deeply about what it is to be human, then I feel like it's not operating in its full power.
2: Mm. I mean, everybody and their brothers talked about Kate Blanchett, but I think it is really important to understand the distinct difference between the male gaze when it comes to Kate Blanchett's performance versus a queer gaze, which is not to necessarily say that she's not sexualized in that performance, but it is a very different type of sexualization occurring there that is big dom energy, like a level of powerful, assured and uncompromising feminine sexual power that's happening there that we definitely we see. I think we relate it to drag a lot of times. There is an aspect of drag that is less about I'm doing this for you and more about I'm doing this because I'm really just this amazing. I can't be confined to one gender. And that I think is what she's portraying that kind of queerness. We could get into the queerness of Valkyrie it literally exhibiting what is a very stereotypical masculine role and never one never once being not feminine at the same time which is a thing that is always precarious for black women in cinema of only mm. being allowed to be a sexual object or a masculine sexless object and she gets to inhabit it both and be a wonderful thirst trap for all of us queer people <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and then also there's the queerness of Thor being goofy, to be vulnerable to be silly and that there there is a queering of masculinity occurring there where he, none of his vulnerabilities are ever associated with weakness mm-hmm. in that way that often homophobia is enacted against straight men. Mm. I mean, obviously it affects gay men too, but the fear of homophobia, anti queer sentiment, often when it functions within heterosexual people, it's not a fear of gay people, it's a fear of being treated like gay people. Mm-hmm. And he's never punished for that. I mean, obviously, big gay daddy Jeff Goldblum is not punishing anybody for being that. And definitely clear that Loki made himself a sugar baby to Jeff Goldblum's sugar daddy. <laughs> and that that was how he made things work.
0: That's how he's getting along so quickly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we know that Odin is the All Father, who is the daddy. Jean, why don't you kick us off here?
2: You know, I think Korg is a great daddy and father. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's a very appealing character and just his soft uh, masculinity. I was talking to a friend of mine on Twitter yesterday about talking about Hobbit's soft masculinity mm-hmm. is so healing. And it is very much in that same he he's vibrating on that same level of hobbit wholesomeness we all should be like korg this is
1: lovely i want to be my best korg
0: (laughs) sarah why does he stick out to you why does why is korg something that sticks out to you
1: yeah like he is a revolutionary but if he is not able to be leading a revolution in his current circumstances. And he's going to like make sure you clean the gore off of your gladiator weapons and be like really friendly when you get thrown into the freaky circle. He's like the Mrs. Garrett of this, uh, <laughs> this trash planet. <laughs> I don't know. There just aren't that many characters like that. And especially not in superhero movies. And he just makes me really happy. I just love him a lot. That's all I got to say. Yeah.
0: I feel like whenever I do this is like feels like a bit of a cheat, but I really mean it is I think that Taika Waititi in this movie yeah. is the daddy like, I don't know, like, I feel like it's such a precarious thing to go from being an indie darling to directing a large movie like this. And it Yeah, look be- what
1: happened to Kenneth Branagh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it can be it can be just extraordinarily difficult to bring your voice, your perspective and your Mm -hmm. insight against what I can only imagine is a wild battle between your voice and reconciling Mm -hmm. what a company wants and what freedoms you're going. Like, it just seems hard. And this is a director whose vision and whose insights I love in all of their other formats and who I can feel in this movie with the perspective, with the lens, with all of the things that we've talked about. Like I can think of few if no other more successful translations of someone's kind of more indie oeuvre. Mm. They brought it to this this giant universe and found a way to fit into it. And that's an extraordinary feat.
1: Where can we find more of your work, more of your wonderfulness? mostly twitter is usually where i live
2: um you can find me anywhere that's uh fangirl jean uh, my main site is fangirljean.com but really i usually live on twitter fangirl j-e-a-n-n-e
0: all right everybody thank you so so much for listening to this fine fine episode you can find fangirl Jean on the internet we'll have some links in the show notes Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, who produced the episode. She's our music director as well. Thanks for everything you do, Carolyn. Thanks for making this episode sound great. You can find the music of You Are Good Volume 1 on Bandcamp and streaming. And you can find the rest of Carolyn's music at carolynkendrick.com. Dot com. Thank you to Fresh Lush for providing the beats to this show. Thank you for supporting the show via Patreon patreon.com slash you are good. You can also support us by leaving a review. That'd be nice if you were feeling up to it. If you've listened this far in and you haven't given a review, I think you're the perfect candidate for giving a review, you know, on Apple podcast. We appreciate it. Each episode is accompanied by a playlist. These are songs that Sarah and I pick out that we're inspired by. They're songs that overwhelm our hearts when we think about the conversation. So you can find a link to that playlist in the show notes. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram. uh, You are good pod. And yeah, like I said, next week we will cover Raising Arizona. I think that's it. I think that's all I got for you. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks for everything. Thanks for being you. You are good.